Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 10 and 11, but let me read the entire chapter thus far. 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given given to all of us things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, Lord God, we pray that you would incline our hearts to hear and to receive We pray for the precious work of the Holy Spirit, for his guidance, for his wooing, for his conviction, for his comfort, as he presses the outward words of the scripture into the hearts of his people as they hear of Christ. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Peter says, I am a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to those of you who have the same precious faith as me. And that faith, that reliance, that ultimate salvation comes only through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Then he offers words of grace and peace. You know, he can do that. We can do that. We can say, in Christ, brother or sister, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. But it's in the knowledge of Christ. It's all about Christ. And as he's speaking of Christ, he says this. His divine power. Christ's godly power. His divine power has given us all things that we need that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of Christ. It's as if Peter keeps talking about Christ before he speaks a word about us. Then he says... It's through knowledge of Christ, it's through the promises that come in Christ that we have escaped the desire and lust and the way of this world. And so, Christian, Peter says, 
Be diligent to add to your faith. And then he gives a list of qualities, doesn't he? Virtue and perseverance, knowledge, godliness. And as we saw last week, this isn't a stair step. This isn't a a plan of what to add next. But he's heightening this list. It's a literary device to help us to see that because we have everything we need in Christ and because we're secure in Christ's righteousness, we ought to live a life where we want to grow in virtue and knowledge and perseverance or patience, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. And then he says, hey, if, if you don't do these things, you'll be unfruitful. And if you don't do these things, you're like one who has forgotten that you've been cleansed from former sins. Either... You've never really known Christ. You've never really gone to Christ for the washing away of your sins. You preach him with your mouth, but you don't know him. Or you know him. You've become so nearsighted and blind that you've forgotten that he has washed away your sins. Oh, you're trusting in him. You're living a life forgetting that he's cleansed you from all that the world and its corruptions live in. And then we get to our text, don't we? Therefore, be even more diligent. Now, we needed to have that background because today's text is a challenging one. It's not challenging because it's difficult to understand. It's challenging because it cuts deep into our hearts. Jesus, his righteousness, his promises, his power are preached to our hearts in the first nine verses. And then Peter says, therefore, because of all these things, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Now the word diligence was used in verse five of chapter one. There, Peter says, but also for this very reason, the reason being that you have everything you need in Christ for life and godliness, give diligence And then he lists these qualities that we are to grow in. But here he says, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. And then he says this, for if you do these things. What are the these things of verse 10? Well, it's the qualities of verses 5 through 7. If you add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control, and patience or endurance, godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. If you do these things, he says this, and we'll talk about it, you will never stumble. This flows out of verse 9 that speaks to having forgotten about the cleansing of former sins. Peter is making an argument here, and he starts with Christ. Christ is the ground of your salvation. Listen, friend, you may have walked into this church house this morning. Someone invited you. And you're going to hear me talk from the scriptures about the need for Christians to consider where they stand with the living God. You need to consider where you stand with the living God. And you need to understand, perhaps having missed all of the previous sermons of this book, that standing before God is in the righteousness of Christ. That he, the perfect substitute for the sinner, lived a life pleasing to God, completely and purely pleasing according to his humanity. 
that he died on the cross, and when he died, God poured out judgment, judgment for the sins that every single person committed, every single person that would ultimately come to be saved by him. Christ is the substitute, and thus it is by his righteousness and his power and the promises that God gives us in Christ that a person is saved. So keep that in the back of your mind as you hear us walk through these two verses. This phrase, the promises, this precious promises, verse 4. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that God makes promises to humanity in and through Christ. If you come through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, you will be saved from your sins. You will be adopted as my child, the living God says. The slate of all your failures will be cleansed because they will be born by him. And he will provide the door to heaven. So all of that is the foundation. But notice what Peter says. If you do these things, meaning the qualities of verses 5 through 7, you will never stumble. Now I think in our two verses, again, 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11, there are three reasons annexed, attached to adding these qualities to our faith. Why do this? Why do this? Why spend my life as a follower of Christ seeking to grow in virtue and knowledge and self-control and the rest? Why? Well, there are three reasons at least. The first is this, because it promotes assurance. It promotes assurance. Look there at what he says. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Making your call and election sure. Well, Peter in 1 Peter, the author of this book is the author of the other book attached to it, 1 Peter, spent a lot of time talking about God's calling. Here, the word call means the effectual call of Christ by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, effectual call? Well, you know, there are a lot of people that I can call. I can pick up the phone and call you. I can be on the playground here after church watching over children and call to one who is running out into the road, perhaps. But I don't really have the power to make it an effectual call, do I? I can give the words, but ultimately my words may not be met with obedience. But the effectual call is the calling of the Holy Spirit whereby as someone hears the gospel, the message of what Christ has done with their ears through a preacher like me, the Holy Spirit works in their heart and is calling them to Christ with effect. It produces the aim for which it is given. This is the effectual call. But he says, make your call and election sure. Now Peter is no stranger to the doctrine of election. In both letters it is referenced. This is the understanding that God chooses all things that come to pass. All things. There is not a leaf on a tree in your backyard, boys and girls, that the living God hasn't chosen to be there. He chooses all things. And thus, 
from all eternity, he has decreed that there will be many from every nation and tribe and tongue who will respond savingly to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now Peter says, make your call and election sure. Be assured of it. Make sure it is certain, as some translations say. Make sure it is valid, as one early church father used that word. Is it a valid call and election? God's eternal election is just that. It is God's. Now, to be clear, what Peter is not asking you to do is climb into the mind of God, if we can say it that way. We're not to focus on trying to figure out whether in the mind of God we are elect or not. Some people read this verse that way and for their whole life long, their journey is spent lacking assurance because they love Christ, but they have this sneaking suspicion in the back of their mind, maybe they're not elect. But the scripture doesn't call us to consider the doctrine of election that way. Firstly then, let me help you to see that the scripture says that election is sure to God. We're not to try to figure out whether our election is sure with God or not. Just a couple of passages. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Peter is not saying, we've we got to figure out whether God is sure of who belongs to God. Or how about Romans eleven twenty nine? Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There's a lifelong weight of comfort in that verse. If you've walked with Christ long enough to see your failures after coming to Him. He doesn't change His mind. I made a mistake. I don't want you anyway. The callings and gifts of God are irrevocable. They're unchangeable. They're not take-backable. But nonetheless, Peter says, therefore... Be ever more diligent. Those of you who may be tempted to have forgotten that you've been cleansed from former sins. To make your call and election sure. So what then is the focus? If it's not to try to find a way to get into the mind of God which we cannot access as finite sinful creatures, the focus here is not on discovering the secret mind of God, but rather assessing whether our life lines up with this calling and election. It's our growth in assurance. Our call in this passage, as we shall see, is how we can know it is sure. Peter is saying if you live a life doing these things with diligence, considering your own walk before the Lord, it will promote assurance. You see, the call to consider our election is 
connected to this call to do what? Be diligent to walk as if we are Christ's. Verses 5 to 7. So why add these qualities to our faith? Well, it helps us with assurance. But notice Peter says this, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. That's how the qualities of verses 5 through 7 are connected with assurance. Peter makes the connection. If you do these things. Now John Calvin, the reformer of the 1500s, writing on this passage says this, quote, with regard to those who feel in themselves the efficacious working of the Spirit, Peter bids them to take courage as to the future because the Lord has laid in them the solid foundation of a true and sure calling. Now you need to hear me on this, Christian, and non-Christian alike, but you need to hear me on this. Calvin is absolutely right, but don't, Don't mishear what is being spoken. The ground of your assurance is Christ and him crucified and his call to any who will come. That is the ground of assurance. You don't look at your life and say, I have attained this amount of outward things, therefore I deserve salvation. The ground of your salvation is that Christ looks at anyone and says, whatever your sins, whatever your baggage, come to me and I will give you rest. I will take you. I will not turn you away. And you, believing what the scripture says about him, go to him. He is the Lord. He is God. He is the perfect substitute for me. And you run to him. That's the ground of your assurance. But if you live a life where you can see fruit of that work of Christ in you, it promotes you being able to see that reality now. Imagine being able to have comfort now, not just when you're with Christ, that you will be saved. This is one of the key debates of the Reformation. The Roman Catholics said, you you can't have assurance The reformers wanted to say, we beg to differ on the authority of God's word. We're called to seek it out. We're called through the writings of St. Peter to do what? To make our call and election sure. To look at our lives and not say, because of my life, I get to go in. But because of Christ and even the fruit that I see in my own soul now, I can be assured that God is my father, that Christ is my savior. Let me give you an illustration Some of you are runners. I know we have some cross-country runners in the room this morning. You've run races before. And perhaps, if you're like me, you ask the question regularly in those miles-long races, will I finish? Will I finish? You you don't know. (laughs) You think, well, I could trip. I could get an injury. I I could fall. And all the things that flood into your mind cause you to say, the way I'm feeling right now, there's no way I'm going to finish this race. They're going to have to carry me to the finish line. A better question, perhaps for you in those races, (laughs) is not will I finish, but am I currently running? And that's really the spiritual application. Do I see evidence in my own heart of not only faith in Christ, but a growth 
even if ever so small, in the desire for virtue and knowledge. Endurance, godliness, brotherly kindness. Now, I think we would be blunting this text if we didn't at least say that Peter is clear. He wants believers to have comfort. But we would be blunting this text if we moved on and did not at least ask ourselves the question, are you in the faith, friend? In the 1600s, a group of theologians, we call them divines. Boys and girls, they weren't divine. That's just what we used to call theologians. Gathered together to write a statement of faith in the 1600s. They gathered at a rather large church in England, Westminster, and they came up with a wonderful document known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of the men there, Obadiah Sedgwick, what a name, wrote these words. And they're startling words. They're strong words. But they're words that can be asked as people remember the previous nine verses of Second Peter 1. Christ, Christ, Christ. Sedgwick writes this. Maybe you've spent many years in a form of godliness, in respectable behavior, in courting God by some external performances. Then you come to die and then your conscience rises up and opens up the secrets of your heart and life and makes you to know and feel that notwithstanding all your claims and conceits, your heart had continually harbored many known lusts and you weren't thinking of God but basely thinking of yourself in all that you did. End quote. I read this to us because, brothers and sisters, there actually is a call to consider our calling and election. And yes, we are right to be concerned that we don't spend too much time looking at ourselves because if we do that, we won't have assurance unless it's a false assurance because it'll be based in us. But at the same time, we don't want to take a passage like this and say, hey, we're reformed. Assurance is possible. Move along. Move along. Do you sense in your soul a desire when no one else is watching, when no one else sees you, to live before the face of God? Even if when no one else is watching, when no one else sees you, you find yourself frustrated that you are not where you want to be or ought to be. Is there any soul-level or heart-level desire for Christ at all? I'm not asking you to gauge how well you love Christ. I'm not asking you to gauge how well you do these virtues. I'm just asking you, is Christ really at all something that occupies your heart at all? Because if it's not, it's very possible to go through this list and say, check, I will seek to be virtuous. I will seek to grow in knowledge. I'm going to bare knuckle of some self-control and perseverance. And to the rest of the world, I'm going to look godly. 
<laughs> and when I compare myself to everyone else around me, specifically the world that we live in, I'm more godly. You're looking for a guy who follows the Ten Commandments? Well, you won't see many of my failures. I can look like I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter's going to say, be diligent to do those things, but be even more diligent to do what? Know that you belong to Christ. Sedgwick is right to ask the question or to make the statement. Now the ground of our assurance when we hear that, because undoubtedly there will be some in the room who love Christ. They hear those words and they think, ah, I look at myself and I begin to wonder. Do you see Christ for who he is? Do you believe that he has received you because you've come to him? because of what his word says? Do you believe that even though all of the failures of your life are not worthy of that Christ, that even that lack in some small way concerns you? Or would you say that while you're professing Christ, you don't care about him or living before him? Make with all diligence your call and election Sure. Boys and girls, you don't need to sit in your room at night and think, well, does, does God, does, does God love me? Did, did he choose me? I mean, the preacher was talking about God electing people. Did he choose me? The scripture doesn't call us to tinker, to play with, to try to figure out in our minds who God has elected and who he hasn't. The scriptures just tell us here is Christ. Come to him. And it tells us that in John 6, 37, if you've come to Christ, he will not turn you away, which means you are his. There's a precious set of verses speaking about them earlier that help us to see that no one comes to Jesus unless God draws him. John 6, 44. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. But John six thirty seven helps us to see that all that the Father has given to Christ to save will come to him, and those that come to him, he will not turn away. How do you know if you're elect? You've come to Christ savingly. You have no hope of assurance that you're a Christian if you haven't come to Christ. And if your coming to Christ is an outward thing based on you and your works and not on Christ, you haven't come to Christ. If you're claiming that Jesus is yours but you have no inward desire at all to live your life for him, you have not come to Christ. But if you've come to Christ and you stumble and you see yourself stumbling more than you ever saw yourself stumbling before and it bothers you and you want to please the Lord but you want to live in your sin and you see this war and it is a war that you hate and you've noticed there's a change in me but it's not what I want it to be. Sometimes your heart is cold and you don't want to consider the things of Christ but within a matter of days or weeks, sometimes even a period of months, there's this, ah, I love the message of Christ. 
I might even question whether I'm his or not, but I love it. Then you have come to Christ. One theologian said it this way. If you desire Christ, truly, he's already yours. So one of the reasons to live in these virtues is because it promotes assurance. But secondly, it prevents apostasy. Look what Peter says. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, what does that phrase, never stumble, mean? I mean, at first glance, you might be thinking, I'm in trouble because I stumble all the time. I sin. I get tripped up in the Christian journey. Well, he's not saying... Do these virtues and you will never, ever commit a sin. That would contradict other passages of Scripture like Romans 7 where the Christian is pictured in the life of Paul as one who doesn't want to sin but does sin. It's also not saying you won't stumble into the worst of sins because there are believers in the Bible itself who stumbled into the worst of sins. Think about King David. Lust, adultery, murder, pride, lying, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Or how about Peter? Peter, the writer of this letter, walked with Christ face to face for three years. (laughs) Three years. And in the moment when the world said you might experience some pain for your profession of faith in Christ, he denied Christ three times. I don't know him. Peter later had to be corrected by another apostle over kind of a lack of living out the gospel in the right way. Peter is really a model for us all. If you're like me, you want to be an Enoch of old, but you're a Peter of the new covenant. So it can't mean that you won't ever sin, period. It can't mean that you won't even fall into scandalous sin. Just read the believers of the Old Testament. It means you will not fall into final apostasy. You will not stumble finally and completely away from Christ. Now, how does living in virtues in this list help you to do that? Because... Peter says, if you do these things, you will never stumble. So again, is this Peter's way of saying, you're saved by Jesus, but you keep yourself in by your works? Not at all. Regularly desiring to add to your faith, and by God's grace seeking to do it, is a means that the Lord uses to keep us in the faith. Again, Calvin Quote, Peter seems again to ascribe to the merits of works that God furthers our salvation and also that we continually persevere in his grace. But the explanation is obvious. For his purpose was only to show that hypocrites have in them nothing real or solid and that on the contrary, they who prove their calling sure by good works are free from the danger of falling because sure and sufficient is the grace of God by which they are supported. 
Thus, the certainty of our salvation by no means depends on us. Let me say that again. Do you need to hear that this morning? Thus, the certainty of our salvation by no means depends on us, as doubtless the cause of it is beyond our limits. End quote. You hear what, you hear what Calvin is doing? He said, Peter is not saying, hey, you will keep yourself in the faith. You won't apostatize from the faith. If you just do these works, you keep yourself. No, 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 no. Who is it that keeps ourselves? Who is it that keeps you? The divine power of Christ. Rather, one of the means that the Lord uses to keep you on the road is your regular growth in these things. One of the means used of God to prevent apostasy is you actually growing in your faith. Listen, the more that you are concerned with growing in your faith, the less you are concerned with walking away from Christ. So why give diligence to do these things? Well, it provides or promotes assurance. And it prevents apostasy. You may be saying, what do you mean by it prevents? God keeps you. And one of the many ways, tangibly, that he keeps you is that he's got you growing prevents apostasy. But thirdly, why do these things? Why add these qualities to our faith? Well, it provides abundance. It provides abundance. Once again, I've not been overly creative. That's what the verse literally says. Look at verse 11. So, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now again, for the third time in a row, is this saying, if you do these virtues of verses 5 and 7, you will get in? Some people read it that way. Christ starts the saving process. You do a bunch of works and ensure that one day you will get in. And you know who loves to preach that false gospel? Satan. But on the surface, it looks that way. Translations will help us here a little bit. But let me say up front, your entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not supplied to you based on your ability to add qualities to your faith. But rather... As you are on the journey of the entrance into his kingdom, which he has provided, and he will ensure that you have, you can have that entrance abundantly or less abundantly. Now, I don't regularly do this, but I, I think probably the clearest translation of this verse from the original language might be something like this. So keep in mind what Peter said in verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Listen to this translation. This is kind of a hyper-literal translation from the original. 
for thus abundantly will be supplied to you. See, in, in the original language, abundantly or richly comes first. For thus abundantly will be supplied to you the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love the English version that we're using and the versions that many of you are using, but quite, quite frankly, I think the emphasis here is on the word abundantly. This is not saying you get in if you do these things because you earned it. This is saying there will be an abundant supply, a rich supply as you are on the path. Notice even the language. It will be supplied to you. Those of you that love grammar, that's passive. It happens to you from someone else. You don't supply it. It's given to you. And the focus is on the abundance, which is why we do five through seven because it provides abundance. So just to be clear, does our work grant an entrance, A, or B, does our work provide an abundant journey out of the provision we already have in Christ? I think the latter. Reformation-era scholars and Puritans all point to this. Calvin, Poole, Gill. Notice what John Gill, the Baptist preacher of the 1700s, says about this verse. Quote, An abundant supply of grace and strength shall freely be afforded to carry you through all the duties and trials of life, and when that shall be ended, an admission will be granted. Notice what Gill is doing. I think he's doing in line with the structure of this verse. Doing these things with diligence is a means that the Lord uses to give you an abundant, rich journey. But it's not that if you do these things, you get in, you get to add to Jesus, you'll keep yourself in the faith. To say it another way, John Calvin writes this, the Lord will abundantly supply your need until you shall enter into his eternal kingdom. And you will experience in the journey toward the celestial city, a more rich, abundant supply when you are walking before Christ, growing in virtue, than lacking it. Growing in knowledge, than lacking it. Growing in self-control, than lacking it. Why bother with these qualities? Because it helps us to see that we're in the faith. It promotes assurance. It's a means that the Lord uses to keep us from walking away from Jesus. And it provides an abundant journey towards that entrance that is to come. Your adding of specific qualities to your faith is a means that the Lord provides to you and uses in you to make the long entrance you are on an abundant one. Boys and girls, occasionally Pastor Ryan travels to foreign countries. And I've been on a lot of airplanes, so I get less excited about getting on airplanes than I used to. But every once in a while, I still get excited about getting on an airplane that's going to a foreign country. Do you know why? Because there's a lot more stuff that they give you, at least on some airlines when you're flying halfway across the world. You know, you you fly from here to D.C. or here to New York, and you might, you might get a Coke and a cookie. But if you pick the right international airline, even if you sit, as I do, in the economy class, 
There's carts coming along all the time, bringing every kind of which way stuff. Ice cream, you want ice cream, sir? Who doesn't want ice cream? Would you like a hot towel? I don't even know what to do with the hot towel, but they bring the hot towel, so I take the hot towel. But I'm on the plane no matter what I take. No one's kicking me off the plane. We take off, I will make the end destination. The pilot will ensure it. But I can add to my journey the abundant supply that they are offering me. I didn't go outside the plane and find the cookies and the ice cream and the nice meals. No, 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 no. It's there. But it's a much better and more abundant journey if I avail myself of it. If I get up and walk around and go to the galley and say, oh, there's a whole basket full of wonderful chocolate bars. I think I'll have one or two of those. See, the question is not, am I going to make my destination? Let me just eat enough candy bars to do it. No, 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 no. I'm on the plane. The pilot is in control, and he's provided, his airline has provided everything to me. But some of us on that plane will have a more abundant and rich supply because we avail ourselves of the things that are there. Why avail yourself of the wonderful supply of virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness that is available to you by Christ? Because you will have a much more rich and abundant journey by doing so. So do it. But don't ever think, I'm doing this, I'm eating all the candy bars so I know I'm on the plane. The pilot who welcomed you when you sat down is the one who will get you to the end. Your journey is more abundant when you add these qualities. God uses it to keep you from taking your eyes off of Jesus. And he even uses it to help you to see in your own life, God actually is working in me. Praise be his name. Let's pray. Living God, help us to make our calling and election sure. Help us to look to Christ as Peter does multiple times and then to evaluate before Christ what we see in our lives. For those who are here who don't know Christ, I pray today that the precious words of Christ in the scriptures, when he promises to save anyone from their sins who will come to him, that you would draw them Holy Spirit We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.